can you imagine what it would have been like if newspapers and cable news and social media were around the day after David killed Goliath? Headlines might read something like this. Local shepherd boy kills 14-foot Philistine with a slingshot. And maybe you flip on the news the, the day after and you see King Saul critics. They immediately pounce. They knew he's always been weak like this. And you see King Saul loyalists and you might hear them cry out the day after David kills Goliath. This is fake news. But anyway, you slice it. I bet David would have gone viral overnight on the internet. David went from being a no-name runt of his family to a five-star general, pretty much in an instant. Now, 1 Samuel 18 tells us different responses to David's meteoric rise. King Saul likes David at first. David solved the problem not just that no one else could solve. David solved the problem that no one else was willing to touch So 1 Samuel 18 verse 5 says that Saul set David over the men of war and that David had success anywhere that he went. But David didn't just go viral. He also hit the radio because there was a new number one hit song on the Billboard charts and it went something like this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. I bet every time Saul turned on the radio, it was like Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. It's just all the time, every day. And I bet his servants hummed this song when they got, went and brought him food. And so 1 Samuel 18 verse 9 says that Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him because this young kid, David, had eclipsed him. So from that day on, Saul set out to destroy David. But 1 Samuel 18 tells us of another response to David's meteoric rise. This one is from King Saul's son, Jonathan. Now put yourself in Jonathan's sandals just for a moment. You are the guy who is next in line for the throne. And I bet you grew up singing the song that Simba sang in Lion King. I just can't wait to be king. And now this David guy is the most famous figure in all of Israel. He's a legitimate rival. And you could reasonably say, David's fame belongs to me, not him. But not just that, this David guy is a mighty warrior. He just killed this giant. So David is a legitimate threat. So you could reasonably say, I have to fight this guy before he takes me out. But Jonathan goes down neither one of these paths. Instead, he declares loyalty to David, even at risk to himself because it would have ticked off his dad too. Jonathan recognizes that David, not himself, is God's chosen king. So the question for us, for you, how do you respond when you encounter true greatness? Not just a celebrity, not just an athlete. How do you respond to God's chosen king? My friend, at the end of the day, that we have two choices. We can respond like Saul, or we can respond like Jonathan. You can deny the greatness in front of you and assert your own, or 
you can deny your own greatness and cling to his. In John chapter 3, Jesus has become famous almost overnight. This great son of David, God's ultimate chosen king, is here. And John the Baptist can either go the way of Saul or he can go the way of Jonathan. So let's read from John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. You'll find it on page 888 if you're looking at the Bibles provided. John 3, 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at, at Aenon near Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. There's a main point or a big idea to today's passage. It's this. Although there are many faithful servants of God, although there are many faithful servants of God, there is only one in whom we must believe for eternal life. Although there are many faithful servants of God, there is only one in whom we must believe for eternal life. Maybe we can simplify it a a little bit and say, it's about Jesus, not about us. Life, who gets the glory, our aim of our ministry, it's about Jesus, not us. So we're going to go through this passage in three parts. First part of this passage, we see the apparent tension. The apparent tension. Like lots of sections in John's gospel, this one starts with the setting. Different details that build up to the tension. And so verse 21 tells us that Jesus is in the Judean countryside. So remember that most of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is in that region of Judea, and here Jesus heads north. And John tells us that Jesus spends more than just a day in the countryside. He says that Jesus remained there. And while Jesus is there, he baptizes people. But that might be puzzling to us. That that might pique our interest a little bit and cause us to ask a couple of questions. So 
it sounds surprising because we don't see Jesus baptizing anywhere else. Was Jesus the one doing the baptizing here? Well, that helps if we look ahead. You could look ahead to chapter 4, verse 2, which says Jesus, didn't, Jesus himself didn't baptize anyone. Only his disciples did. But still, we might ask another question when we see that Jesus or his disciples are baptizing. We might ask, was that baptism different than John the Baptist's baptism? Now, that question's not as obvious to answer, but I would argue that they're not different, that they are the same, at least at this point. I argue that for a couple reasons. The first reason is that during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus preaches largely the same message that John the Baptist does. So take a verse, for example, like Mark 1, verse 15. Jesus says this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Very similar message as John the Baptist. But the second reason is that this baptism in John 3 comes before Jesus' work on the cross. So a place like Romans chapter 6 describes baptism as a display of our union with Christ. That when we believe in Jesus, we are united to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So just think about it. Here in John 3, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection hadn't happened yet. And so I think baptism has a different meaning at this point. And by the way, that symbolism is why we dunk people here. It's why we immerse people in water. It's, it shows our union with Christ, that we have uh, died, been buried, and rose again along with him. And I, it, it could be that the detail that there was plenty of water, if you spot that in John 3, that there was plenty of water, that might indicate that they needed enough water to immerse people in. And so here we're just laying down the setting. We're building to the tension. And so far, it's no big deal. What tension could there be? Jesus' disciples are baptizing people in the Judean countryside. What could go wrong? Well, it's really where they set up shop. They set up shop close to John the Baptist. Now, John the Apostle, the author of this book, reminds us that John the Baptist's ministry is still successful at this point. Plenty of people come to him to be baptized. They come to John and they say, I'm turning from my sin, from living to myself, and I'm preparing to receive the Messiah who's about to come. But now Jesus arrives on the scene and people are going to him. It's like John the Baptist was the beloved mom and pop grocery store. Been around for a long time. And Jesus was like the Walmart supercenter that just moved into town. And so now you see we got some seeds of tension, right? Now, before we get there, though, John adds another narrator's note in verse 24. He says that all of this happened before, that, before John the Baptist was arrested. I think this note's there to help us keep in mind the big story of Jesus. So the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke... They describe Jesus' ministry mainly after John the Baptist gets arrested. So I think John is trying to help his readers fit in where this event happens in the storyline of Jesus. So it's just a quick note. But now we come to verse 25. We're getting closer to the tension. It says that there was a discussion over purification between a Jew and John's disciples. 
Now, the Apostle John, the author, has previously used this title, Jew, to refer to a religious official. Now, this man approaches John the Baptist's disciples likely because his disciples were more accessible. They would be kind of like John the Baptist's detail, like his bouncers, maybe. And if, if John the Baptist's disciples are anything like Jesus' disciples, hint, they are, then they would be a lot more easy to poke their buttons than John the Baptist. So you could, you could more easily pick an argument with these guys than you could with John the Baptist. Now, looking at verse 25, we don't get any details about this Jewish man. We don't get, we don't get told the substance of their conversation. We don't even get told the tone of their conversation. We just get told that they talk about purification. Now, we can't say if they talk about that, if they talk about purification, then they must be on the same page to some extent. They must both understand, well, that they need to be purified, that they stand dirty before God, and they must understand that God has provided some way to be cleansed. But then if we look at the context, we might get another clue about their conversation. If you look at the next verse, verse 26. Verse 26 tells us that they must have talked about something that made made John's disciples question Jesus. Must have talked about something that made them question Jesus. So maybe the discussion went like this. This Jewish man comes to them and tells them, all right, guys, your rabbi came along telling us that we needed something other than our current purification system. Okay, great. But now this other guy comes along, and even more people are going to him, and they're not going to your guy anymore. So what gives? Was your rabbi's purification ineffective? So can you see how this man might have raised some doubts, even raised some frustration, maybe got under the skin a little bit of John the Baptist's disciples. And so these guys, they go to their rabbi, they go to John the Baptist, and, and they have a beef with him. At least they have a frustration. And it's like they go to John the Baptist and they tell him, John, you're telling us that we've been out here for months in the wilderness And we've been good sports eating locusts right along with you. And all these people came. All these people got baptized. And now are are you to tell us that it was all for nothing? And look at this Jesus guy. What gives this guy the right? You were here first. We were here first. This Jesus guy shows up and a week later, people start flocking to him. And you could, you, could sense, you could sense their frustration in verse 26, at the very end of it. You could sense their frustration in their exaggeration. Notice what they, what they whine to John. They, they tell him, all are going to Jesus. All are going to him. Everybody. When we're frustrated, we exaggerate. Everybody's going to Jesus. Was that the case? No, not everybody believed in Jesus, but they were, it seems to be frustrated. So here's attention. And I think for, our, for ourselves, if we're trying to identify with someone in the story, it's probably John the Baptist's disciples. So we, it's worth examining ourselves to see whether or not we have the same heart. I know so often we do. 
Friend, do you criticize people a lot? Is that the topic of your conversations often? Are you bitter about what you don't have? Are you frustrated when you don't get your way? There's a grown-up version of pouting, believe me, I know. Is it easy to get in an argument with you? Do you always have to prove that you're right? Let's be honest. We have the same selfish tendencies as John's disciples. When we are quick to criticize, when we get stuck in bitterness, when we get frustrated easily, when we have a short fuse, when we are overly defensive, what happens? Well, what happens is that we won't see God's work of grace around us. What happens is that we'll end up working to advance our own cause, not God's cause. Think about John's disciples here. John's disciples were so caught up in themselves that it kept them from seeing that the Messiah was there. I mean, my goodness. And do you know what's scary? Imagine a marriage, a family, a church filled with people just like John's disciples. Selfish, envious, bitter, critical, demanding, ungrateful, and therefore just ineffective. We don't really have to try hard to imagine this. We know churches are filled with these kinds of people because of the letters to churches in the New Testament. Think about the factions in Corinth. The useless arguments and quarrels in Ephesus that Paul describes in First and Second Timothy. The greed and favoritism that James describes in his letter. We are just like John's disciples, have their same selfish tendencies. But we have to say, there is a better way. There is still yet a more excellent way. So we've seen the apparent tension. Now we see the humble response in verses 27 to 30. John the Baptist tells his disciples, guys, tension? There is no tension. And before we dive into John's response, just keep in mind here, keep in mind that how, how so often grace is just beautiful and refreshing. Great, it's, it's, as Proverbs put it, like a, it's like a sweet apple uh, set, set in a gold setting. Here, here's John the Baptist and he meets a selfish complaint with a gracious, humble response. He meets a selfish complaint with a gracious, humble response. Guys, imagine how much better our marriages, our parenting, and just our witness in general would be if we did the same thing. Now, we say John has a humble response, so what does this humility look like? Well, I think it looks like that he knows at least three truths about himself. He knows at least three truths about himself. First, John knows what he deserves. John knows what he deserves. Verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So it's like John the Baptist tells his disciples, guys, okay, listen. Nothing about my ministry is my achievement. 
all the people who came to be baptized, all the people who came to hear me preach, you realize that I received that, don't you? I didn't earn it. I don't get the credit for it. God does. And so you're complaining that Jesus' ministry is growing. Well, it must be then it's growing because that's the Father's plan. So do you know what undermines and undercuts the demanding spirit of John's disciples? You know what undermines that? Knowing what we actually deserve. Any opportunity to serve the almighty God of the universe is a gift. It's a gift. I mean, my friend, you were once an enemy of God. The Bible is clear about that. Any opportunity to serve him must be a gift. And if you know that, then you will be grateful for any ministry that the Lord allows you to have. One pastor, I've heard his story several times. He has a testimony about how God seemed to just follow him around when he was an unbeliever in college. His name is Garrett. And Garrett was knee-deep in the party scene. Uh, Garrett did very hard drugs. He did cocaine. He did ecstasy. Garrett slept around. Garrett got his girlfriend pregnant, and he helped her get an abortion. But God placed people in Garrett's path. And slowly, God rescued him. So you can imagine that Garrett has really powerful and compelling story. And when the Lord saved him, Garrett had a heart for the people he used to get high with. And many of them came to know Christ. But soon enough, Garrett realized something. He realized that people really liked to hear his story. And so Garrett began to strut a little bit. So when Garrett moved to, town, to a Texas town for a church internship, he volunteered with a campus ministry. And the pastor who ran this ministry, he could spot Garrett's strut. So Garrett showed up at one of the ministry's events, and the pastor went up to him. He says, Garrett, listen to me. I've got a very important job for you, okay? But Garrett's ready. He's like, oh, he must want me to speak. He's probably heard about me. I'm ready to speak anytime. And so to his shock and his surprise, the pastor told him, Garrett, I need you to open and close the curtains for each speaker tonight. And Garrett was ticked. He did it. But the whole night, he criticized every speaker. Someone would get done saying, speaking, and he would say things like, you know, I could have done it better than him. Would have been way better. But later on, Garrett would say that it was that night that God exposed his heart. It was that night that, God, that Garrett realized nobody struts in heaven. Nobody struts when serving in the kingdom of God. What opportunity to serve has God given you? you a parent? you a spouse? Grandparent? Employee? Neighbor? I look out of this room. The majority of you are members of this church. Do you know that's a ministry? It's not just a, it's not just a way we keep stats. It's a ministry. You have the ministry of helping your fellow church member follow Christ. That is a gift. Are you grateful for that gift? Or do you think you can serve only if you're in the spotlight? 
We don't deserve anything. So we have to wake up to what we have received and be grateful for it. So John meets a selfish complaint with a very humble response. The first, you can see his humble response because he knows three truths about himself. The first truth is that he knows what he deserves. The second truth is that he knows his job. He tells these guys, I know my job. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. So John says something really important that you and I need to know, and his disciples should have already knew. Really important. Your job is not to be Jesus. Your job is not to be your own Lord and Savior. That's what we try to do by default. It's what we still try to do when we act like we're self-sufficient, when we can go days at a time without speaking to the Lord. But let me tell you something. We stink at that job. Why else would the real Messiah have to come if we were good at it? So John's job is not to be Jesus. John's job is to prepare and point people to Jesus. And that sounds like a good job description for you and me too, doesn't it? That any success we have, any gifts we've received, all of it should point to how great Jesus is, not to how great we are. Prepare and point people to Jesus. That was John's job. You know, that sounds like a good job description for a church too, doesn't it? Prepare and point people to Jesus by how we live, by our sermons, by how we interact together. There's more we could say probably, yes. But the nature of our ministry should be to get out of the way and make much of Christ. And so it reminds me uh, of, of something um, that I found on Twitter. Uh, believe it or not, you can find occasional wisdom on Twitter. Um, verse 28 reminds me of a tweet I saw from author Trillia Newbell. She says this, I didn't become a Christian because someone shared about their awesome church. I became a Christian after someone shared the gospel. Preach the gospel, not your church. Humility looks like knowing your job. Our job is not to be Jesus. Our job is to prepare and point people to Jesus. So uh, don't hear me saying, it's, it's not wrong to talk about our church. That's fine. But what we're saying is, brag more about Jesus than you brag about your church. Because the problem with pointing to ourselves all the time is that eventually we're going to let people down. So what does humility look like? Well, John says, I know what I deserve. He says, secondly, I know my job. And third, he says, I know my joy. I know my joy. Go on in, in verses 29 and 30. The one, who has the, bridegroom, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. John says he's like the best man at a wedding. The best man back then would organize all the details of, uh, of the ceremony 
And the best man would be the guy through whom the bride and groom would communicate. So the best man's job and his joy was to bring the bride and groom together. That was his joy. Now think about it. What kind of best man would John the Baptist be if he wanted to steal the show? Maybe you see this at a wedding reception where the best man's speech goes on just a little bit too long. But even worse, what kind of best man would John the Baptist be if he stepped in and tried to be the groom? So John knows that people need to hear Jesus' voice, not his. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called the Lord's bride. And also throughout the Old Testament, this bride is unfaithful and breaks her marriage covenant. And yet God promises to make a new covenant with her. And by calling Jesus the bridegroom, John says that Jesus is the king that brings this new covenant. So John's joy is for people to receive the one they truly need. They don't truly need John. They truly need Jesus, the bridegroom. And my friends, if this is our joy, to see people receive the one they truly need, if if that's our joy too, then you know what one thing I think it'll do? If that's our joy, one thing that'll do is cure our competitive spirit we have with other churches. If our joy is just to see people receive the one they actually need, that will remove our competitive spirit with other churches. Reminds me of what Paul tells the Christians in the city of Philippi. And he tells them how there were other pastors and preachers making trouble for him, that not everybody liked him, that some were jealous of him. But what does Paul say? You can flip there if you like, Philippians 1, 15 to 18. You got to flip forward. Keep in mind, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians 1, 15 to 18. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. It's like Paul says, who cares what they think about me? It's not about me anyway. As long as they're faithfully preaching Jesus, I rejoice. You know, that's why we pray for other gospel preaching churches every single week here. Every single week, we want it to be a part of our rhythm, a part of our DNA. That we are on the same mission with so many other Christians in our area. We are in cooperation, not in competition. So as I've heard it said, the world is starving. And we need more restaurants that serve the one true nourishment, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And even here in these last couple verses, 29 and 30, you can imagine that that John could have had a, a kind of false humility here. He could have responded to his disciples' complaints in a a very sly way. He could have said, guys, no, listen, hold on a second here. This whole pointing to Jesus stick can actually work out for us. Let's, Let's go along with it. Here's what we'll do. We'll point to Jesus to prop ourselves up. We'll point to Jesus to get famous. We'll ride his coattails to get what we want. 
But notice here, John does not have joy in his own will. He does not have joy in his own glory. John has joy in Christ's will, in Christ's glory. His joy is that people know Jesus, not that people know him. Jesus must increase or else people will stay in their sin and never be reconciled to God. John knows that he can't do this for people. And so Jesus must be the one in the spotlight, not him. Jesus must increase. So the apparent tension, the humble response. And finally, we get a full explanation of why this is the case in verses 31 to 36. It seems that John the Apostle takes over and narrates this last section and wraps up chapter 3. So John reiterates who Jesus is and why belief in Jesus is vital. So Jesus must increase because Jesus alone comes from heaven. We see this from verses 31 and 32. Jesus alone comes from heaven. He says, everyone else is from earth. Limited. Earlier it says, uh, John baptizes with water. Jesus will baptize with the spirit. Jesus alone gives people a new heart and a new nature. And John confirms that Jesus isn't making up this stuff as he goes along. Jesus teaches what he has seen and heard from heaven. So Jesus must increase because he alone comes from heaven. He must increase because his words are God's words. His words are God's words. We take this from verses 33 and 34. One commentator puts it like this. Jesus completely says and does all that God says and does So much so that to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. And conversely, not to believe in Jesus is to call God a liar. This makes Jesus unlike anyone else the Father has sent. Other prophets and servants have had the Holy Spirit, but they received only the measure of the Spirit they needed for their task. Jesus has the Spirit without measure. At his baptism, John saw the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove and remain there. And we think about it, Jesus has no sin to grieve the Holy Spirit. This means that there is no one more trustworthy than Jesus, the one who comes from heaven, the one who speaks God's words, the one who is filled with the Spirit. Jesus speaks no errors, he speaks no lies, he speaks no partial truths. No one more trustworthy. So he must increase. Jesus must increase from verse 35 because the Father loves him and he will reign over all. The Father has many servants. He has only one son. Remember the Father's words at Jesus' transfiguration when Jesus' glory was briefly unveiled. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the father's love for the son leads him to give his son all things. So people should come to Jesus for all things. And in light of the context, we come to Jesus especially for the Holy Spirit and for eternal life. This is why Jesus must increase. And so taking stock of all this, taking a step back and looking at the big picture, let's ask ourselves again, Are you more like John the Baptist's disciples or John the Baptist? I don't know about you, but 
But John the Baptist's humility feels so unnatural. I don't have to work hard to be selfish. It's just, it, it, for all of us, it just feels natural. It's just natural to be selfish. It, it takes conscious effort to be humble. And so how do, you, how do we get to the point of John the Baptist's humility? The point where we know where we deserve. The point where we know what our job is meant to be. The point where we know where our real joy is meant to be. How do we get there? Well, I think verses 31 to 35 help. You get there when you truly encounter this Jesus described here. Because when you truly encounter this Jesus, you can either keep asserting yourself or you can come to an end of yourself. Put it another way, my friend, you will not be humble until you are humbled. You will not be humble until you are humbled. If you have not bowed your knee to the true king, then that means you're still standing before him and maybe strutting as well. And do you see how verse 36 describes unbelief in Jesus? How does it describe it? It, call, it, it calls unbelief disobedience. Is that surprising to you? It, it, it calls it that because to believe and follow the king, it's not just a suggestion. It's a command. It's a command. And if you disobey this command, we just have to preach what the text says. It will not go well for you. The wrath of God remains on you. If you go the way of asserting your own great greatness, strutting instead of kneeling, trusting in yourself instead of Christ, you'll end up the same way that King Saul did. He destroyed himself. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 36 is a very somber note to end on. And our cynical selves might say, ah, you know, this is just another one of those fear tactics. This is just another way to use fear to manipulate people. And yeah, fear is a powerful motivator. We got to say a couple things. For one, if, if God does not have wrath, then God would be indifferent to the evils that we know exist. But we got to say something else too. That God warns of his wrath out of his love. You think about this, a scenario that's easy to envision. Let's say uh, a dad is watching his daughter play in their front yard, playing with a ball or something, and bright sunny day, but the ball rolls out into the street. Common occurrence. But his daughter starts to run out into the street, and there's a car that's speeding, and it's it's speeding ahead. It's going to be well-timed. And so if you're the dad in this situation, what would you do? You're far away. You yell, you scream, you do anything you can to get, this, to get your daughter's attention. And it might scare your daughter, yeah. But you know it'll be, that's, that fright, that's, that's scary, that fear will be worth avoiding the destruction that lies ahead if she doesn't stop. And so it's the same thing with our Heavenly Father. He, he yells to warn out of love and when we turn, he is ready to bring us back into his arms. That's the only reason why. And so the news 
is even more incredible than this. That, that God would even give a warning is incredible. But even when we didn't listen to our Father and kept going, Jesus caught up and it's like he took that hit in our place. That the wrath of God came upon Jesus at the cross. Brother and sister, how can your heart not melt into humility at that sacrifice for you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, simply put, you must increase, we must decrease. God, our our, our daily experience exposes hearts that are very proud and selfish. You know, maybe we don't strut in obvious ways, but but surely enough, we, we try to assert ourselves in our own, getting our own way, being overly defensive, being bitter, and hanging on to what we want instead of finding our joy in you. So Lord, for for all of us, in our lives, in this church, would you increase and would we put ourselves behind and put you first? We can't do this apart from your spirit working through your word. Please help us, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.